us for today's scripture reading from Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, and I, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. Well, at this time, uh, we invite kids uh, ages three and four to participate in uh, Children's Church, which is a right-sized portion of the gospel uh, and God's word just for them. Um, it'll be about 40 minutes or so with our staff. They are right over there uh, to my left, your right. Uh, please remember masks. Uh, if this is your first time with us this morning, we ask that you would uh, go with your kids and, and see what, where they will be also uh, to meet our staff. Um, and let me now uh, pray for us as we move into this time of looking at God's word and also for our kids. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the beauty of your creation and that we can be together. Uh, we rejoice and that I know I, I've, I've seen a few people today that I know are part of this body, but I have met for the first time, and we give you thanks that we can be together um, after a long and hard season. We pray for our kids who will be hearing from your word. We pray for ourselves as well, that your word would dwell deeply in us, that it would draw our hearts to see the glories and the beauties of Jesus, and that you would lead us to see uh, what it looks like to entrust ourselves to him and to follow him and to surrender ourselves to you. We ask that you would do this for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, as Jeff said, uh, this is our last week, week eight, in our revision series. And, uh, you know, without your knowledge, you've been going through Discovering Trinity. So that's, that's great. Um, that's our membership class here at this church. And so in light of this, I don't think I've ever said this before about a sermon series. But I would really encourage you to go back and re-listen to these eight sermons uh, or give it a first listen if you, if you happen to miss one. Because these last, the last seven weeks and then this week, we're really trying to name what we think God in Scripture is calling us to be as a church. And future generations of uh, people who will come and become members of this church, this, this is what they're going to listen to. This is what we're going to be discussing as people come to join our body. 
Uh, for those of you who are members at Trinity or you watch the older videos discovering Trinity, you may remember that one of the last talks begins with sort of a honest question, kind of a hard question, which is basically, do you want to be a part of this? The last eight weeks, we've talked about the gospel, we've talked about this vision that God gives in scripture of his church, his beautiful people who are being restored and made whole in Jesus. We've talked about a church uh, that is hospitable and, and a church of community. We've talked about being apprentices of Jesus, following him, and we talked about worship. Last week, we talked about mission and what it looks like to be a people who are showing the mercy and truth of God in our lives. And it's good for us to ask that question, do I, do you want to be a part of this? Do you, do you want to grow in this with us? Do you, do you want this vision? Uh, because being a member of a church is, is not like, for example, being a member of your local library or your local gym or Costco perhaps. Um, and the point of all of this is not that we would be an exclusive club. We hope that this church more and more will be a church where people of all sorts are coming, where people who maybe have never been in a church before will come. People who have been away from the church for a period of time or who have been hurt from the church will come and will learn about the beauty of Jesus and what it looks like to follow him together. So it's not about being exclusive, but it is about clarity, about what we mean when we talk about being a part of this body. So in my wallet, in my back pocket, uh, I have my Costco membership card, and my relationship to Costco is one of, a, it's a consumer relationship. It's a transactional relationship. I go to Costco, I'm willing to pay for my membership because I love getting quality bulk groceries and sometimes TVs and tech and, and the deals on that and sometimes rotisserie chickens and I've not done it yet, but you know the, like the hot dog that's always staring you in the face as you're checking out the $1.50 hot dog? So that's my relationship to Costco. Costco doesn't care if I go you know, sometimes or all the time, although maybe for their bottom line they care. Uh, my membership at Costco isn't personal. I'm not a member at Costco because Costco has a vision of human flourishing, and I have this vision of human flourishing, and together we have this, like, I'm just so excited to share in a vision of human flourishing with Costco. If there was a better store, better products, cheaper, I, I would be gone. And in a lot of ways that we probably don't always even recognize, our world shapes us to be consumers. We live in a world where relationships are less and less characterized by depth and commitment and faithfulness and a, I'm in this with you no matter the cost, but relationships that are incre increasingly more shallow based on transactions, what can I get out of being connected to you? You know, we, we even talk about this with the church sometimes. I'm not judging you if you've ever used this phrase, but, right, we're looking for a new church. We're going church shopping, kind of shopping around. We're looking at the options. And again, unfortunately, probably in ways that we don't even realize, 
we've been shaped in the way we think and in the way we do relationships to this sort of consumer transactional approach. Uh, New Testament scholar and teacher D.A. Carson, he names this really well, writing on this passage in Philippians, he somewhat sarcastically writes this, quote, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, not enough that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I really learn to hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies cherish self-denial, or contemplate missionary service in some foreign culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, broad-minded, forgiving people. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected, my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel. I don't think it's unfair in one sense to say that for some time in our nation that Christianity has, for perhaps many, almost been more of a product, something to be used, a sort of, what can I get out of this thing? Uh, how can I avoid as much uncomfortable change as possible, but yet get enough of the benefits of religion to kind of feel a bit better? And when we're talking about being a part of a body, being members of a church, we mean what Paul describes in this passage, if you have it in front of you, verse 5, when he writes of partnership in the gospel. And this is what I want to do this morning. I want us to unpack this idea of partnership in the gospel, flesh it out a bit. And then secondly, I want us to think about the fruit that comes from real partnership in the gospel. So first, partnership in the gospel. The letter begins, if you look, verse 3, Paul is just like oozing joy and thankfulness for his friends and these fellow believers in Philippi. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. And he gives one main reason for his thankfulness for these believers. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, this word partnership uh, in the Greek, it's koinonia. It's a very rich term. It's often translated as fellowship or sometimes participation or partnership. Fellowship, that's a word that we probably don't use much outside the church, right? So church buildings often have a fellowship hall or you know after church there's that time or we used to do it hopefully we'll do it again where there's donuts and coffee and you might call that the fellowship hour um if you have your neighbors over you'd say like we hung out we did a cookout or whatever but if some church friends came over maybe you'd say we, we enjoyed some good fellowship you know we don't use that word it's kind of a churchy word except for one place i think in our culture at least in, in my sort of cultural memory where fellowship is used in a very biblical sense, and it is the Lord of the Rings, right? So the first book, or if you're like me, the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. If you haven't seen it or read it, let me give a terribly simplistic plot summary. One sentence. There's a ring of power, 
and it has to be destroyed so that the whole world isn't overtaken by the evil dark lord. And so this group of some hobbits, some men, an elf, a wizard, and a dwarf, they come together for this common goal of getting the ring to Mordor, this very difficult long journey, and destroying it. There is deep connection and bonds between these people. But there's also a shared vision and mission and great sacrifice for it. And there are you know, countless scenes that depict this, but for me, one that I think of is at the end of the first movie, when Frodo is crossing the river and he's going to journey alone. And you may remember if you've seen it that Sam runs to the edge of the beach and he just yells, Frodo! And then he dives in the water and he can't swim and so he's like paddling ferociously and he almost drowns and Frodo grabs him and he pulls him in the boat and he's looking at him like, Sam, what is wrong with you? And he says, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. It's this incredibly like touching scene because there's this bond and there's this shared vision. The other word, it's often translated as partnership. And this meaning for us, I think, is a little bit more clear because you might think, for example, of a business partnership. And that is an important aspect to what Paul is talking about because koinonia, this word is often used in relationship to financial matters, right? So if you and I wanted to start a business together, and let's say like we needed $100,000 to make this thing get off the ground. And so you bring 50K and I like pull out of savings and I pull out of my retirement and I get 50K and we go in, now we have a partnership. We both have skin in the game. It matters to us how this works. True partnership or fellowship means my resources, my life is in this thing. And notice that Paul says this is a partnership in the gospel. Right? The gospel meaning the good news that in and through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that the promised kingdom of God has begun and that in Jesus all that has been lost and broken through sin is being restored and made whole. That in Jesus, as we've said, there is a new way to be human. There's a new humanity, a new life to live under his good rule, to be one who is forgiven and loved, to be someone who is being restored and made whole. And this is what gives Paul so much joy. This is what fills him with thankfulness as he thinks of this church, because they are sharers and allies and partners in that with him in the gospel and in the gospel advancing in the world. And this is, this is what we mean when we talk about church membership or being a member in a church, being a partner in the gospel. So let me ask, let me ask you, is, is that how you think about your relationship here at Trinity to this church with each other? especially if you're someone who has taken membership vows, do you and do we together have a vested interest in each other's lives? Do our relationships with each other center around a shared vision and mission for the gospel to take more ground in our own lives and to take more ground in the world that more people would come to know the grace and the love of Jesus? 
Are we a church of Frodo's and Sam's to one another? That's the partnership in the gospel. Second, let's, let's think about the fruit that flows from that. Two things I want us to think about with this. The fruit, first, that's shared between us here. The love shared between each other. And then second, the fruit and the love that's shared and displayed out in the world. So first, the, the love and the fruit that we share here amongst each other. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. It's totally appropriate, Paul says, that I have this thankfulness, that I have this joy, that I have this confidence in God's work in you. And then he says, because I hold you in my heart. Like right at the center of Paul's life, the control center of how he feels and thinks and makes decisions and, and plans like what he's going to do with his life is this church and these people who are sharing with him in the mission and advancement of the gospel. And he goes on to say in verse 7 of, of these gospel partners, verse 7, they are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul, you may know, is, is in a Roman prison at this time of writing this letter for spreading the good news of Jesus. And he's sending this letter in response to this church in Philippi who has sent support and help to him while he's in prison. But for Paul, more than just that one gift, and you can see this throughout the rest of the letter and even the way he talks about from the first day until now, that from Paul's vantage point, he sees the struggle that he's currently in, facing in Rome in a prison, mirrored and shared by these people who are seeking to follow Jesus and advance the mission of Jesus in Philippi, that together they share in grace, they share in suffering, they share in struggle. And then he says this, verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let me ask, when was the last time you said something like remotely close to that to another human being? Like, if you're married, maybe to a spouse or maybe to a child. It might sound like over the top, like too much. Like, that's a little weird, Paul. I don't think I would say that to another person. But honestly, wouldn't it be great if we could say that? Wouldn't it be great if we could say that and mean it? Maybe you, maybe you do feel that. Maybe we should say these sorts of things occasionally to each other. Wouldn't it be great to have this kind of love in our hearts for others and for others that have this kind of love for us? When he says, I yearn for you with the affections of Christ, literally it's, I yearn for you with the guts of Christ. This is a word that's it's used in the Gospels to describe the compassionate longing and deep affection that Jesus has toward the hurting, the broken, the confused, the lost. And Paul says his longing for them isn't just like 
following the path of Jesus, I love you kind of like how Jesus loves you. He says, I love you with the guts of Jesus. Which is not something that's like only for Paul because Paul's, you know, he wrote 13 letters of the New Testament and he's an apostle. And so he could say that, but we couldn't. Because what he's saying here is something that's foundational to Paul, if you've ever read Paul, is that a believer in Jesus is someone who is united to Jesus. That you are in Christ and Christ is in you. This is what is possible. This is the kind of love that we can have that is ours if we are in Christ. And that's possible in these sorts of gospel partnership relationships. Because it's not like it's just, you know, there's lots of ways you can be connected to people. If you and I go into business, we're probably going to care about each other to some extent because we're both in this thing and we have ambitions about it. But this isn't just like, well, you have ambitions for Jesus and I have ambitions for Jesus and together we love each other because there's this whole other thing here, which is Jesus. That's greater than anything that you could imagine. The living Christ connecting us in you, in me, that we share in this together. And that's the vision here. Second, let's, let's think about what this fruit looks like in the world. If you look at verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us what he prays for these believers. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for love. And the love that he is talking about here, I think it's very different from the way love is often used in our world. Because he's not talking about primarily a feeling and he's definitely not talking about like a passive thing. Like sometimes, you know, if, if, if you uh, are not for someone's choice or you don't support someone's desire, it, it's said that you don't love them. And so love almost sometimes in a way that it's used in our world is almost this sort of like passive, just letting everybody do whatever they want and feel. But what Paul is talking about here is loving action, wise discerning action in the world that's fruitful. He says in uh, verse 10, Paul prays that they would have this wise discerning love so that you may approve what is excellent. Another way of translating this is to say, so that you may know what really matters. If you think about it, every day, we make literally hundreds, maybe thousands of choices. Choices about how we're gonna respond to all sorts of pressures and hardships. Pressures in our jobs, pressures, stressors with health, in our families, with our kids, wishing we were married, wishing we had kids, wishing we had a different job, all sorts of choices. We make choices all the time in terms of what we're going to invest our lives in. Are we going to invest our, our time and our energy in, in, in work and, and what is that going to look like? In relationships and what's the goal of those relationships? In all sorts of things, in news and politics and social media or just watching Netflix because we're just exhausted and we just want to ex escape. We make so many choices. What if you could know what really matters? 
What if you could have such a clarity about life that in all the confusion and the stress, along with the good parts of life, that you knew what really mattered? And so no matter what the circumstances, whether life was going really good for you at that time, or whether it was a really hard season, that you knew what really counts. That's what Paul prays for here. Last week, if you were with us, Jeff told a story about a guy named Lang Langdon Gilkey, who was an English teacher in China in the early 20th century. And as a humanist, Gilkey was convinced in the power of human rationality and human goodness. But then during World War II, uh, the, the Japanese invaded China, and Gilkey, along with about 2,000 other Westerners, mostly uh, highly educated, were all forced to live in a Japanese-run concentration camp. They lived in very small spaces, 10 little bunks to a room, resources were often scarce, and as time went on in this camp, uh, people became increasingly selfish, protecting themselves or their families or their cliques, often to the detriment of others in the camp. And there were many missionaries in the camp. And Gilkey often saw these other missionaries act just as selfishly as everybody else. And reflecting on it, he, he talked about the inward bentness of the human being. But there was one missionary in the camp a man named Eric Liddell, who was radically, radically different. Uh, if, you, if you've heard that name or you think that name sounds familiar, uh, the movie Chariots of Fire is, is based on Eric Liddell. He was an Olympic gold, runner, gold medal winner and runner, and one of his most famous quotes uh, was, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. In 1924, he won the Olympic gold medal in the 400, and when he won it, he set the world record time for that race. Now, if that was you, what would you be thinking about? My wife will tell you that if I go for a run around our neighborhood, and I like shave a mile off my, or shave a minute off my mile time. Like I come home and I have to talk about it and I have to tell her like I did 7:32 today, and I'm like really excited about it. This is how Eric Liddell reflects on winning the gold medal. Quote: It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home the gold medal, but since I have been young, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a race greater than any I have run in Paris, and this race ends when God gives out the medals. So he wins the gold medal, and like for him, this is just like a reminder of that my whole life is about Jesus and about the kingdom. It's about that day of Christ that Paul writes about in this passage in verse 6 and 10. He was obviously a person deeply committed to Jesus, someone who was rooted in Jesus and knew the grace and the love of God. And in fact, that's why he's in China in the first place during World War II, because he was there serving as a missionary. And even when the British government said, you all need to get out because Japan is advancing, he stayed. And while many in the camp are forming cliques and acting selfishly, Liddell spends his time in the camp helping the elderly, teaching Bible studies, teaching science classes to the kids, the children in the camp refer to him as Uncle Eric. 
and Gilkey, uh, recalling what Eric Liddell was like in the camp, wrote this. Often I would see him in the evening directing some sort of square dance, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these pent-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life, with enthusiasm and charm. It is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I had ever known. Here was a man rooted in Jesus who knew what really matters. And so even as he spends the last years of his life in a concentration camp and died in that camp, he spent his life bearing the fruit of righteousness to the betterment of everyone around him who was just amazed at, at the work of Jesus through this man. And what I want you to imagine is like, what if we had like a church of people like that? A church of like Eric Liddell's in a world that's so often about self-protection and self-preservation, a world of transactional relationships, a world of relationships based around ROI, return on investment. And if it's looking bad, I bail. But rather, deeply caring for one another, giving ourselves to the work of the gospel. This is really the vision that we've been talking about, a vision of Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. And wherever you are this morning, I hope that you hear the gracious call of God to be a part of this. So maybe for some of you, like you're new to Trinity, or you're still even, you know, you're asking questions about, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? Or I don't think I'm there yet. I don't think I believe in Jesus. Maybe for you, this means like you just keep coming and you keep experiencing with us what the scriptures tell us about the beauty and the grace of Jesus, because this really is real. For others, maybe it's we hear God's gracious call that we would re-engage in gospel partnerships here. That we're members of Trinity and we say, I, I want to engage more in this, in real relationships in the gospel with people here. And perhaps for others of you, it's, it's saying, I want to join this. I want to be a part of this. I want to take the next step and become a member here at Trinity. Wherever you are this morning, we must remember that the God who calls us to this and calls us to this way of life in this passage is the God who held nothing back from us. The God who, in Jesus Christ, gave himself completely and fully for us. Let's turn now to a time of prayer. As we have just heard God's word, can turn to a time of, of confession, perhaps, where we honestly speak to the Lord about the ways that we know, perhaps, that we're, we're holding back or we're afraid to really give ourselves to him, to confess our sin, to ask for his help. We'll spend a few moments doing that in silent confession, and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Father, we thank you for your amazing grace to us that you, of your will, brought us in to share in Jesus Christ, into the fellowship of Christ. This is something you have done. And we pray that you would increasingly help us to respond to the way that you, in Christ, uh, have given us so much that we might, with joy, give ourselves to one another and experience the beauties of love and relationship that we see in a passage like this. Would our lives be more